So we're starting a new sermon series today, okay? It's going to be a little bit different from other sermon series we tend to do. We tend to do work through books, right? That tends to be the normal thing at Revolve. And um, I, a couple weeks ago, we have a doctrine class that has been meeting on Wednesdays and a group of men that I'm meeting with, and we're going through a doctrine book. Doctrine is basically just, you know, what the Bible teaches about God and Someone described it as stuff Christians should know, right? And what we do is if we're looking at a certain doctrine, like let's say we're looking at the doctrine of sin, um, then what we would do is we'll read passages like Genesis chapter 3, Romans 1, and we'll read those passages and we'll just ask questions about what that passage teaches about sin. And then we also have a book we're kind of reading on our own and we'll talk about it. But we try to spend most of our time in the Word And so a couple weeks ago, we were looking at Genesis 1 through 3 because we were focusing on the question of anthropology. Anthropology just means, you know, what does it mean to be human? What are humans? What's humanity all about? And so we did a deep dive, medium dive, into Genesis 1 through 3. And as we read those passages, we just asked some basic questions. We asked, what does this teach about God, about his nature, his person, his character, What does this teach about humanity? What does it teach about God's design, about God's created order? And we talked, what does it it teach us about sin? What does it teach us about the impact of sin on our relationship with God, on our relationship with one another, our relationship with creation? Just asking these questions and just filling the chalkboard in the Revolve office space with the things people were saying. And it was a really fascinating time. Um, And... For me, there was one thing in particular that really struck me, and I I know that I brought it up on that evening with that group of guys, but something that really struck me was how we had this picture of God making man in his image, and then there were certain kind of uh, activities or certain things that man was entrusted with or things that were said about God. And so it said, you know, God has made a man, man's image, but then it said, um, you know, that you should be fruitful and multiply, that man, man is given dominion, that man was created male and female, that man was put into the garden to work and to keep the land, that it wasn't good for man to be alone, And as I was reflecting on those things, and more, I mean, some of the things I wrote down, man's made in God's image, man became alive when God breathed the spirit of life into him, that we have these different things that I mentioned. It struck me that when you look at our world today, that what it means to be human is really what's under attack. And I don't mean like what's under attack, like, well, politically it's under attack. No, it's spiritual, right? It's spiritual attack. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 16, that now we regard no one according to the flesh. We regard people according to the spirit. Though we used to regard Christ according to the flesh, we do so no longer. And so what that means is that as with spiritual eyes, as a follower of Christ, we can look out on the world and we can realize that there's a spiritual battle at at play, right? And there's not um, multiple teams. There's people who are still enslaved to darkness and people who have walked into freedom, right? And so you realize that the enemy, that this deceiver of the nations, 
that that great serpent of old, Satan, is continually attacking, continually attacking, prowling around like a lion, seeking to devour. And it really struck me that there's an attack on what it means to be human. There's an attack on what it means to be male, female. There's an attack on what it means to be fruitful and multiply, on what it means to have dominion. There's an attack on what it means to work. And there's an attack on the idea of community, that it's not good for man to be alone because we think we, you know, we basically hang out now online instead of hanging out in person. And we watch people camp on YouTube instead of going camping, right? And so we have all of the, and you're like, oh, that's me. <laughs> so we have these core ideas of what it means to be human. These things that are intertwined with who we are are marred by sin, and they're under continued attack since Genesis chapter 3. And so in this doctrine class, we talked about how sin corrupted this idea of being an image bearer. It corrupted the plan, the purpose that God had for us to be fruitful and multiply, to have dominion over the world. Um, it, we looked at the, what's called the fall in Genesis chapter 3 and how God showed mercy and gave promise even in the midst of that. And the more I chewed on this, the more I wanted to talk about it. Um, and so here we are. And so we're going to begin at the beginning. It's a very good place to start. And um, we want to see what the scriptures say about humanity. We want to see what the scriptures say about sin. We want to see what the scriptures say about God's promise to save. Because I think this is this foundational structure is of the utmost importance. And so basically today I want to lay out an overview of what does it mean to be made in the image of God. Next week we're going to talk about the fall and how Genesis chapter 3 corrupted that image and God's promise to save and restore. And then what I want to do is take one week per topic to look at what is the biblical, what is the biblical um, purpose and design how has sin corrupted it, and how is it being restored in the new covenant? So in other words, we're going to spend a whole week looking at what does it mean male and female, he created them. What does it mean a whole week be fruitful and multiply? And then how has sin corrupted that? How is the new covenant restoring it? And so that's what we're going to do basically from now until the end of September. And I'm excited about it. And if you're not, I got a microphone. So anyway... Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you would speak through your word. Lord, these are important topics, and these are topics that um, may have been commonplace in minds in, in years gone past. But now, Lord, um, we have other things on our minds. Lord, we don't want to give ourselves to a depraved mind. We want to have a mind that's shaped by your word. We want to be a people of the book. We want to be a people who are taught by your spirit, not by culture. Lord, not by anything else, not by anything lesser, but by you. God, would you speak through me? Would you speak through your word? Amen. Mankind is made in the image of God. That's the first point. Mankind's made in the image of God. If you were going to, we're not going to read it for the sake of time, but if you were going to look at Genesis chapter 1, and if you were going to look at that in its entirety and you were going to read it, you see this beautiful picture. You see this beautiful picture. And if you haven't read Genesis 1 in a while, I encourage you to do that this week. But we have this picture that in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. And if you ever wondered what's the main point of Genesis chapter 1, the author is so kind as to tell you right there in verse 1 that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. I know that's true because if we were going to explain to you the next 
thing after those words is what's called a vav disjunctive in Hebrew. And that means that it separates that phrase from what happens next. And so it's almost like in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is the subtitle of the chapter. That God wants you to know front and center, this is the point. Don't get hung up on all of the other things that you could get hung up on. Because this is the point. That in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And if you look at how God did create it, it's beautiful. It says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, but the earth was formless and void. Earth was formless and void. It's a fun Hebrew phrase. It's tohu vavohu. And basically, it's this picture of just chaotic nothingness. It's used again, I think, in the book of Jeremiah when God describes removing the Israelites from Egypt and the prom- or from the promised land and the promised land descending into chaos. It's tohu vavohu. It's just completely formless and void. And so what does God do about the formless and void? He's going to form it, and he's going to fill it. And that's what you see. What you see is that God creates canisters, and then he fills canisters. He doesn't create animals, and then as they're falling to nothing, he, like, throws some dirt underneath it. God creates the canister, and he fills the canister. He creates the water before he fills the water. He creates the, gra- the ground before he fills the ground. He creates the heavens before he fills the heavens with luminaries. He does all of these things because he's an organized God. And we can just look at Genesis 1 and ask some of those basic questions, and we can learn a lot about his character, that he's not a haphazard God. He's not a reckless God. He's an intentional God. He's a God who is, um, it says in the book of Proverbs, that with wisdom, God, that wisdom was with God when he formed the heavens and the earth, that he's an organized God. But one of my favorite parts of Genesis chapter 1 is it says that the Spirit of God was hovering over the deep. And that word spirit in Hebrew, spirit, breath, and wind are all the same word. It's the word ruach. And the picture here is that God, he just breathes over the creation. And that beautiful picture, I mean, that's, that's creepy, right? Like if, I, if you guys are in visiting in the foyer and I just walk up to you behind your back and I go, <sighs> on your neck, I'm going to get punched, right? Either by you or your husband, But that's the intimacy that is pictured in creation, that this isn't a mechanical God. This isn't, um, you know, theological deism where you wind up the clock and you just kind of see what happens, but God is disconnected. No, God is intimately involved. Although he is so amazingly powerful that he can create by, from nothing, by the word of his mouth, at the same time, God is intimately creative or creatively connected to his creation, right? It's a beautiful picture. And we realize from that account that God is good. He creates good things. This isn't like some twisted nightmare of a world. This is a beautiful creation, a creation where God decided he would make sunrises and sunsets and he would make weird-looking animals that live in caves that you don't ever see and, and he'd have fish that are really deep in the ocean and they have all kinds of like weird like little you know flashlights in front of their face so they can make their way around and octopuses that will... Is that octopi? What is it? Octopies? They can shapeshift that God does amazing things. He's a good God. He could have made this whole 
world, black and white. He could have made everything just like straight lines, like tree, right? (laughs) Bush, right? He could have done that, but he didn't. Instead, God, by his creativity, by his goodness, he makes these things that are worth celebrating, these things that when we look at them, they give us this sense of that we want to burst forth with praise. The point of the text in Genesis chapter 1 is that in the beginning, God created the heavens, which means the spiritual realms, and the earth, which is our realm, and it was good. It was good. It wasn't the world that we know. It was good. But then we get to creation of mankind in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Let me read this, 26 to 31, if you want to read along with me. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps, all the creepers on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth. Every tree with every seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. And every beast of the earth, and every bird of the heavens, and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. Everybody was a vegan then. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. It was very good. I just want to look at some of these phrases, and we just want to explain them before we get into a more technical conversation about image of God. First thing we see is let us make man. Let us make man in our image. So what's the us about? Um, Well, it's two things. You're going to have two general views on this, depending on which scholar you read. One is that this is an early reference to the Trinity, you know, where people say that this is like God speaking among him, his tri-unity, God, three persons in one God. Um, And so this is an early reference to that. That might be true. Um, What I think is the second option, which is that this is a reference to the angelic spiritual host that is present with God that he's already created, right? Um, St. Augustine, St. Augustine, not the city, the guy, um, you know, he he believed, uh, whether you agree with him or not, that when it talks about God creating the luminaries, he's referring to angels because often in the Old Testament, stars poetically will refer to the angelic host. And so this idea that God is speaking alongside the spiritual created realm and he's saying, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make man, right? And so he says, let us make man in our image. And why would it say us though? Because the angels, I mean, they're not doing any creating. And there's a sense, I think, in which that, as the angels are entrusted with the spiritual realms, reigning in the spiritual realm under God, there's a sense in which mankind is made to function in the earthly realm. I think this is immediately why, after this phrase, God says, and let them have dominion. 
And so the idea is that you have the realm, the spiritual realm with spiritual beings, and then you have the earthly realm with earthly beings. And as the spiritual beings reign in the spiritual realm, the earthly beings reign in the earthly realm. And sometimes the spiritual beings come down here. Scotty would tell you they come in the form of blurry creatures. And sometimes the earthly people get dragged up there and they have a vision or a dream or some kind of experience. And in the Garden of Eden, it's a unique place. I don't have, if I had two plates, I would go like this and I would show you <laughs> how they cross over each other, like a Venn diagram. You guys remember what a Venn diagram is? Two circles, they overlap in the middle. That's like the spiritual realm and the earthly realm overlapping. And in that overlapping section, that's Eden. That's the Garden of Eden where heaven and earth collide, right? And so this is the picture that God has is let us make man. And he says, let us make man in our image, comma, that is, I impl- I'm putting that in my own translation, that is after our likeness. So we have image and likeness, these two words being synonyms for each other with different nuances. Now, image is sometimes translated as image, sometimes as idol, sometimes as shadow or reflection. And likeness is, well, it's being like something. And we're going to come back to that phrase in depth, so I'm going to move forward. He says, let them have dominion. Dominion. Mankind is the pinnacle of God's creation. Mankind is completely unique, completely separate from the rest of creation, and has a purpose to rule. If you go to Genesis chapter 2, there's another one of those little Hebrew things called a vav disjunctive, and it's showing you that God is zooming in, or the author is zooming in to this next story. And so in Genesis 1, we have big picture creation account. Genesis 2, we zoom in on Adam and Eve, and there's a longer retelling of what we just read. And it says in Genesis 2, 7, that the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground. He's made of dust. That's what we say, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. And it says he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Again, very intimate picture. And the man became a living creature. See, mankind, according to the scriptures, didn't evolve from an ape or from an amoeba. He was formed from the earth the earth over which he was created to reign and have dominion. And then God breathed the breath of life, literally the spirit of life into him. And at that moment, he became a living creature. And God says he was given dominion. That he has a created purpose. That mankind is above the animals. He's above plants. He's above everything else because man is essentially like the gardener over the world. He's in charge of the earthly order as the alpha creation. And we see this played out in Genesis chapter 2 when one of the first things that Adam does is he names all of the uh, animals. And he's like, aardvark, right? Platypus. And he's just making up names. I don't know why. I mean, aardvark's a pretty crazy name. I'm glad Scotty thinks I'm funny. Okay, and so he's doing this, and think about it. If I go up to you and I say, henceforth you shall be known as Aardvark, everybody's just going to think I'm crazy. But if a king did it, well, then your new name is Aardvark. And so here is Adam reigning with dominion, proclaiming the names of these animals. Next phrase, male and female, he created them by God's design. We see right from the beginning, God has created male and female with equal worth 
but not with the same bodily identity. That God has unity and diversity within the creation of mankind, and this is for his glory as we're going to unpack. But our identity in God's created order is not separate from our body. Our body shapes our identity. And this is intrinsically tied to the first command in the entire Bible. The first command in the entire Bible, which is be fruitful and multiply, for which you need a male and a female to do. Man and women are made in God's image to fulfill the dominion mandate reigning over the earth, but they fulfill the dominion mandate by filling the earth with more image bearers as they are fruitful and multiply, as they have babies, in other words, the babies spread all over the world and they give God glory as they reflect him to the world around them, stewarding, reigning over, leading God's created order. And God says it was very good. It was very good. God's plan, God's creation, God's purpose, it wasn't just good, it wasn't just okay, it was very good. It was very good that mankind as God intended him to be is the magnum opus of creation and God took great joy in creating him in his image. And so the question is this, what does it mean to be made in his image? Okay, it's important. What does it mean to be made in his image? And truth be told, there's no one verse, two verses, three verses where you can go and you say, well, you got to turn to Second Aardvark chapter three. Right there, Paul explains what, the image of God is. There's no clear definition. And so what happens, as with many things in the scripture, is you need to have a biblical framework of what it is. And that means you have to look at all the different verses and what you know about God and what you know about people and how God reveals himself in the scriptures. And you need to put those things together. The problem is there's only about three verses in Genesis that even use this word in this context. I'm going to move away from this wedge before it explodes. Well, that one's coming to get me too. <laughs> so it's here. And then in Genesis chapter three, uh, chapter 5, verse 3, it says that Adam had lived 130 years. He fathered a son in his own likeness after his image, and he named him Seth. That's a use. And then in Genesis 9, 6, after the flood, when God says to Noah, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood blood be shed. Why? For God made man in his image. And so those are basically the three uses of, of describing the image of God in the context of man. Almost every other use in the Old Testament is about not creating idols. I know, I wish it were clear too. But almost every other image is about, about idols. You know, don't have an idol, you know, grind that idol down and make your family drink it mixed with water, you know, things like that. But most of it is, um, is not as clear. Now, we get a broader picture in the New Testament, and so we can gather all these things, which we don't have time to do, um, and we can come up with some options, all right? And so now here's the technical part. Hopefully, you won't zone me out. There's three main ways to view the image of God, okay? And you can impress your friends. If your friends are impressed with this kind of stuff, they're probably not. But if they are, the three main views are the substantive view, the relational view, and the functional view of how you interpret the image of God. I'm going to give you 
the 20,000 foot summary of these. Okay? Substantive view is substance, right? And what that means is to be made in the image of God. And you've probably said these things if you've ever talked about these things, you know, with your friends, because that's what you guys talk about. Um, The substantive view is that we have certain substances within us that we share with God, and that's what it means to be made in God's image. So, for example, God has intellect, people have intellect, that must be the image. Or, you know, uh, God can create, I can create, um, and so therefore that must be the image of God in me. Or God is righteous, people can become righteous. And so there's this idea that the similarities between humanity and God are what makes us image bearers. And so from that perspective, the substantive view, it looks at those shared characteristics and it says, that's image. Man can reason, man can create, man can love, because there's a substance that's shared between both parties. Does that make sense? You're probably thinking, makes sense, substantive view all the way. Well, then there's the relational view. The relational view is rooted in this idea that there's the fact that we can have a relationship with God, that we can have a relationship with one another. That's what makes us image bearers. And so the relational view argues that one must be in a relationship with God in order to possess the image of God. And so the relational view says, if you are a follower of God, you have image of God. If you don't have a follower of God, you don't have the image of God. Now, those who hold to the relational view, they would agree that humanity has substantive traits, like intellect and creativity, but they would argue that it is a relationship with God where the image of God is made truly evident, okay? So everyone has the image substantively, but those who have a relationship with God have it relationally. That's my summary of them, right? At this point in time, half of you are zoning out, right? Bear with me. Then there's the third view, which is called the functional view. And the functional view is this idea that our role as having dominion is the image-bearing aspect because God says, let us make mankind our image and let them have dominion. And so they say image is integrally connected to dominion. The idea that we are like little kings. God is the big king, we're little kings, so God is the king of kings, and we have this created image-bearing responsibility to rule. So the functional view interprets the image of God as a role that we play in the created order, where humanity is a king living and reigning over creation under God. Okay. The reality is I don't think any of them are right. I think they're all right, but they're all falling shy of something. It's like you have people looking at different sides of a diamond, right? I think the reality is that it's really a combination of all of the above on one level or another. So, for example, substantively, we don't just have God's image. The Bible says we what? Are God's image. So, if substantively there's certain things about me that make me like God, what about all the other stuff that isn't like God? Does that mean that I'm not made in the image of God except for that one little shred of when I'm a nice person? Because there are not just certain parts of us that are in God's image, and it's not only when we're behaving um, nicely that we're reflecting God's image. 
Because God said in Genesis chapter 9, if you kill a person, then you're destroying the image of God. He didn't say, if you kill a nice person, you're destroying the image of God. If you kill anybody else, you do your thing. That's not what he said, right? He, he said that if you kill a person, you're destroying the image of God. So it has to be more than the substantive concept, even though there is substance within us that makes us different from aardvarks. Poor aardvarks. They're getting a lot of... You know what? I feel like they deserved it, though. You know? Like, when was the last time aardvarks had a shout-out? Okay, relationally... We are made in the image of relational God. We're created to be relational people. God obviously wants a relationship with us. That's what the gospel is all about, okay? But guess what? Animals have relationships with each other too. Dolphins travel in pods. You know, my dog follows me everywhere I go. Even if I have to go use the bathroom, he wants to come, right? And so there's relationship even with things that aren't image bearers. And matter of fact, Paul says in Romans 8 that even creation groans for redemption. And so there has to be something that's different relationally because there is a picture where God's creation trees clap their hands. The rocks themselves would cry out. There's a picture in which even God's creation has a relationship with him, though we probably don't know enough. It hasn't been revealed to us in his word to explain that or to encounter it in depth. Beyond this, again, going back to Genesis 9 and the threat of murder, there isn't a tier system for image bearers, right? And so it needs to be more than substance, and it needs to be more than relationship. And so maybe the functional view is correct, but this is what we see in the functional view. In the functional view, we are given the mandate to steward, and we're given the mandate to reign as God's viceroys, as God's representatives on this planet and one day in his coming kingdom. But that's something I do. It's not who I am, right? There's a difference if you've gone through the ABCs or the hub. There's a difference between identity and activity. And so, again, the image-bearing aspect must be more than that. And all of these views, I think they strike as something that is true, but it's by combining them we get a fuller picture, which is sometimes called the ontological view. And this is how I'll summarize it for you. In 1 Corinthians 11, it says that man is the image and the glory of God. The image is not just something we do, it's something we are. Image is not a trait, it is us. And since we are the only living being made in God's image, it is that which separates us from the animals. It's also that which seems to separate us from the angels. The image bearer is our definitive identity marker from God. And this helps me understand a little bit. In the ancient Near East, a king would reign and he believed himself to be basically like a god or a direct descendant of a god or something like that. Matter of fact, often kings in the ancient Near East would call themselves the image of God. And they, it was their job to determine right from wrong, to determine what was good and evil. And as they spread their empire, what they would do is they'd make statues of themselves, right? We see this in the book of Daniel when Nebuchadnezzar, a Babylonian king, he's this premier king, this premier emperor. And what he does is he makes a big statue of himself. And he says, when the trumpet blows, everybody's got to bow down and worship that statue. When they worship the statue, they're actually worshiping who? They're worshiping Nebuchadnezzar. 
Well, all that happens until one day God humbles Nebuchadnezzar and he starts, he starts off his morning as king and he ends the day insane, living in the fields, eating grass with the other animals. He basically becomes a beast of the earth, okay? And this happens for a period of time as a form of judgment because, and discipline because Nebuchadnezzar refused to humble himself and give glory to God. Instead, he said, I am the premier, I am the premier, I am the premier, as he built these statues and he commanded people to worship them. But at the end of his period of discipline, God gave old Nebi a moment of clarity. In Daniel chapter 4, this is what we read. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, this is his testimony, I lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason was returned to me and I blessed the Most High God. I praised and honored him who lives forever. Why? For his dominion, in other words, his reign, is an everlasting dominion when compared to Nebuchadnezzar's reign, which can be stripped away. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar realized that God is the one true king and that Nebuchadnezzar was just playing as king. So how does this help us understand image? All right, follow me. God is king over everything, the same way Nebuchadnezzar was king over Babylon. He's king over the heavens and the earth. The earth is his footstool, the heavens are his throne. And so God creates Adam as his image, and he puts him on the earth. The same way that Nebuchadnezzar says, I just took over that city, and he builds a statue of himself. God puts Adam and Eve, and he says, here's my image. That image reflects my reign over the earth the same way the Nebuchadnezzar statue was supposed to reflect his reign over the earth. That that image is the glory of God. It shows the strength and the magnitude and the magnificence of who God is. And then he gives a task to the image bearers. He says, since you are my image, you are tasked with the responsibility of spreading my dominion, my glory, my reign over all the earth. And how do you do that? By creating more images and spreading them all over the world, the same way that Nebuchadnezzar would expand his empire and build more statues. And so how do human beings create more image bearers? Procreation, reproduction. That the, the created plan was that as Adam and Eve had babies, and as they had babies, and as their babies had babies, and you would fill the world with image bearers. And as you fill the world with image bearers, you would be filling the world with the glory of God as the waters fill the sea. Because to be made in the image of God is to be the glory of God. You see, these, these realities, do you guys follow with the explanation I just gave? Okay. So these realities underscore our identity that we are relational beings. We are, as one author put it, kin but we are also stewards, we are kings, we are priests to serve our God. And then we're driven to the end of glorifying God in every corner of the earth by this covenantal purpose and promise that God has given us. But in order to accurately reflect image, in order to accurately reflect our creator in every corner of the world, where does the mirror need to be pointing? It needs to be pointing to God. 
Because as soon as I start reflecting something else, I'm no longer reflecting and representing God. I'm reflecting myself. I'm reflecting my culture. I'm reflecting my neighbor, whatever it might be. And this is precisely what went wrong in Genesis chapter 3, as we're going to look at next week. That rather than going to the Lord to find out what was good and evil, they took the kingship into their own hands, like those ancient Near Eastern kings of old, and they said, we'll eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and then we will know what is good and evil, and then we won't have to reflect him anymore. We can reflect our own design. And of course, what happens is disastrous. So let me give you some broad brushstrokes. I know we're running a little bit long. Let me give you some broad brushstrokes here. One, mankind is made in the image of God. Mankind is the image of God. Mankind is made as the image of God. That we reflect him in our identity, image bearers, relational beings, kings, priests who serve our God, as we're going to see in the coming weeks. That we manifest these identities into activities, multiplying, having babies, having dominion, building community, serving the Lord. All of these things are activities that launch out of who we are as image bearers. Two, mankind is unique and set apart from all creation, even from animals and angels, because we alone are made in the image of God. Three, although made from the earth, the dirt, we have the spirit, the ruach of life within us. And that, when the spirit of life fills you, there's so much new covenant stuff here, guys. When the spirit of life fills you, that's when life begins. Spiritually speaking, when the Holy Spirit fills you, that's when life begins. We are far removed from primates. For as such, all human beings, good or evil, born or unborn, sinful or righteous, have intrinsic and inherent value, and we should honor God by honoring them because now we regard no one according to the flesh. We see them with spiritual eyes. And five, the only way we can truly live out our image-bearing identity is by clinging to the author of life. So in the coming weeks, this is what we're going to do. We're going to explain next week how sin broke it. Then what we're going to do is look at male and female, be fruitful, multiply, have dominion, work the garden, and it's not good for man to be alone. And in each of those themes, we're going to look at what was God's design, how did sin ruin it, and how does the new covenant restore it. Does that make sense? And so um, that was a very broad overview. There's obviously a lot more you could discuss in this. Uh, but if you, have, if you want to talk about it, you have any questions, you can feel free to come up and chat with me, and either we'll cover them in the coming weeks, or the elders will be welcome to have conversations with you guys. That's why we're here. Let me pray. Father God, I, um, I, I pray, Lord, that that made some sense for people. I pray, Lord, that we would have a deeper and a richer understanding of the value of humanity, God, and in, in, a, in a culture where humanity is under attack all over the world, God. I pray that you would help us to, to just really embrace the beauty of what you have done and help us in the coming weeks to see your created purpose and the new covenant restoration that you're doing to restore it. We pray these things in your name. Amen.